0: Isn't it good that we're all together in the same place as the body of Christ, the very first day of the year, and uh, it's just just such a blessing to be here, such a blessing to have the privilege to um, preach to you. And um, But I must admit, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous because you've got preaching heavyweights here in the congregation. I only mean that figuratively, brother, just in relation to your preaching. I know how sensitive you are, so please forgive me. But... Um, but I'll do my best. I trust, you know, that the, with the Lord's help, we will be blessed and edified and encouraged as we we enter this year. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, a lot of you would know, um, our daughter Annie and her husband Josh had their first baby, our third grandson, and they named him Luca. And um, I, I dearly love all our children and our grandchildren, but I tell you what, this this little fellow, he's just done something to me. (laughs) You know, I've heard about what happens to old men and grandchildren and things like that, you know. And he has just stolen my heart. You know, I can be right in the middle of something and I just start thinking about him and and I start smiling and and I get on the phone to mum and I say, Annie, I'm coming over to see my boy, you know, and and it's an hour and a half round trip from our place to their place. And, uh, but you know, I'd I'd travel twice as far, just to to get a half an hour in between his feeds and and his naps. And uh, one day, you know, I was just um, sitting there and holding him in my arms, just just looking at him, and there was his, you know, little button nose and his soft, dimply cheeks and and his cute little face, and he's just, you know, sleeping serenely in my arms, um, safe, secure, unconditionally loved. And for those of you who are too young to have experienced that with with your own child uh, or grandchild, I hope you will one day, because it's, it's an experience like no other. And it's an experience that will help you to understand, to some degree at least, the nature and character of God's sacred love for his children. You know, this little boy hasn't done anything good or bad as yet, but I don't love him because of what he's done or what he hasn't done. Um, in fact, I, I, you know, I've come to realize I don't actually have any reason, any particular reason to love him, except that he's my own flesh and blood, and he didn't even make that choice to be that. You know, the old, the old saying: you can, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And I remember that during Annie's pregnancy, how, you know, despite my notoriously bad sex predictions, you know, if you're having a baby and you want to know what it is, just ask me and it's going to be exactly the opposite, 99% sure. But, you know, despite that, I was convinced as I could be that she was having a boy, and almost as convinced as what his name was going to be. And I loved him before he was even born. and I always will. And the title of my message this morning is A Sacred Love. And by way of introduction... I want to say that 2022 has been uh, a pretty uh, challenging year in one way or another for, for most of us, and there isn't a real lot happening around us to encourage us that 2023 is going to be a lot better, especially if we want to be remaining uh, to remain uh, you know, um, faithful in our master's calling on our lives. And I would like you to please turn with me to your Bibles, to the first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. So the book of Matthew, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 14. Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. We live in, in perilous times where true disciples of Christ are continually and increasingly being singled out as, as troublemakers, out of step with public opinion, and bigots who are, you know are stubbornly devoted to their own opinions and prejudices. And if we are to live out our calling as disciples of Christ in the terms that we've just heard read out, spoken by Jesus, we need to understand. That we are not alone. God is with us. We need to be fully convinced that no matter what the future holds for us, no matter what happens in 2023 or afterwards, if the Lord waits that long before returning, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38, 39. Now, love is a very misapplied word in the English language. Whether it's because of ignorance or even a deliberate desire to muddy its meaning, many people today use the word love in a a meaningless, mindless fashion, and some even use it to deliberately offend other people the catch cry love is love is a good example I find that extremely offensive and you might ask why well if somebody uh, insisted that you should drink a glass of water I don't want to be crude but a glass of water obtained from their toilet bowl you're not going to say oh well water is water are you I don't think so The other problem is that love is so overused in the English language to describe all manner of plain, everyday sort of things that uh, its primary meaning becomes obscured and corrupted. I love ice cream. I I love going to the beach. I love my new car, etc., etc. But what does the Bible say about love? Now, it's not easy to come to grips with this because in our English translations, we just see the word love. And in each case, the context usually defines the meaning. But in ancient Greek, there are at least four words, and there's there's actually probably six, but at least four that are used to describe love. And not all of them refer to the unique, sacred love of God that we're looking at as our main topic today. So let's explore this a little bit to start off with. The first Greek word for love we'll look at is eros, E-R-O-S. So what English word... Does that remind you of? Oh, well, you can say it. I know we're in church. Erotic, right? Okay. So if you're down in Surface Paradise and you see a bright rainbow-colored lights sign in front of a shop and it says the Eros shop, you're gonna keep your kids away from there, aren't you? They're not selling lollies. We we all know what it means. So straight away we know that this word is not the word the Bible uses to describe. God's sacred love for his children. Eros was the word used to describe feelings of sexual arousal between two people, regardless of sex. And Eros was also the name of the Greek god of love. The the Roman equivalent was Cupid. And by New Testament times, this word had become so debased by the culture of the day that it's not used even once in the entire New Testament. A second ancient Greek word for love is storge. S-T-O-R-G-E. The word is used to describe natural familial love, such as between a parent and a child. And in the New Testament, the negative word of this word, the negative form, is used twice. In Romans chapter 1, which describes people who uh, God has given up to uncleanness because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped, creature rather than the creator. And we, we go on to verse 31 and it describes these people as, among other things, undeserving, untrustworthy, unforgiving, unmerciful, unloving. And that, that Greek word translated as unloving is astorgos, meaning hard-hearted towards kindred, without natural affection. The other place astorgos is used in is in 2 Timothy 3.3. 3. It's one of the words used to describe people, uh, the characteristics of people living in the perilous times of the last days. And it says people will be unloving, astorgos, unforgiving, slanderers, and so on. And sadly, we see this scenario increasingly in the world that we live in, that people lose that natural love even for members of their own families. Now, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 12 and we're going to be reading from verses 10 to 13 and this is a beautiful passage of scripture it says be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Now, if we want to be uh, doers of the word and not just hearers in the way that we serve the Lord and our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is just a wonderful blueprint and the way for us to really enjoy the way that we relate to one another. Now, there are two Greek words in verse 10 that I want us to look at here. The first is an interesting compound translated as kindly affectionate or devoted to one another in the NAS or simply love one another in the ESV. The compound word here is philostorgos. It combines the Greek word philos and storge and means to cherish one's kindred. In this particular context, it is addressing believers in Christ, children of the same Heavenly Father, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And Romans 12.10 is the only place where Philistogos is used in the New Testament. The other word used in, in Romans 12.10 and six other places in New Testament is Philadelphia. Same as the cheese you buy from Woolies, and the town in the United States. It should be easy to remember. Philadelphia is used in the New Testament to describe brotherly love or brotherly affection or love of the brethren. And this type of love is mostly associated with a very close friendship. It's the kind of warm, generous, affectionate love that one has for a best friend, for instance. It's the kind of love that David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, had through their special friendship in, 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 1 Samuel 1, uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel 18 verses 1 and then 3 to 4, it says the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And then in verse 3, and then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And he, and he took off his armour, even his sword and his bow and belt and gave it to David. And some have tried to pervert this beautiful story of David and Jonathan's special friendship to provide a biblical basis for homosexuality. But it's clear this was not the case. The covenant that David and Jonathan made was not something that is akin to marriage. Uh, And this is made obvious by the fact that they used a procedure that was commonly used in those days when two parties were making a covenant to protect each other from their enemies. In accordance with the, the common covenant ritual of the day, a person's robe represented that person that was taking part in the covenant. And by taking off your robe and giving it to the other party, you were saying symbolically that I give my total life and being to you, And by taking off one's armour and sword and bow and the, the belt that held it all together, you were declaring my strength and my ability to fight now belong to you. And if anyone attacks you, they are attacking me. Your battles are my battles and my battles are your battles. In a similar way uh, to uh, how nations make alliances between each other today, except that this type of covenant could not be broken. So David and Jonathan's special friendship in the Old Testament is an example of what the New Testament calls Philadelphia, or phileo, or brotherly love. So just to recap, we've looked so far at three different words that are used to describe love in the New Testament. Eros, storge, and Philadelphia. Eros, the sexual, romantic love. Storge, national, natural, familial love, like a parent and child. And Philadelphia, brotherly affection, most often associated with a close friendship. But there is yet another type of love, one that we are most concerned with today. The Greek word for this type of love is agapeo or agape, and it appears over 100 times in the New Testament. The essence of agape love is willful delight and goodwill and benevolence towards its object. And while, you know, we cannot apply the word agape with mathematical precision because there are a variety of contexts where it's used. The vast majority of instances in the New Testament, it carries a distinct meaning. Agape is almost always used to describe the love of God that is of God and from God. And in that sense, it is unique and like no other love. It's also important, however, to understand there is a difference between how God, God's love, God's agape, applies to all people universally and how it applies to those he chose to be holy and without blame in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, in a sense, uh, God loves all men, including his enemies. And it helps to remind ourselves that we all started off as his enemies, didn't we? No one is born a friend of God. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your enemies and hate, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, Love agape, your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So Jesus calls us to love our enemies in the way God loves his enemies. And how does God love his enemies? He loves them with a benevolent, caring love. In that sense, God loves all people that he made in his own image, regardless of their election. We call this common grace. Psalm 145 verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Luke 6:35 to 36, He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And Acts chapter 14, Nevertheless, God did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So God is gracious and kind, and he allows even his enemies, even sinners, to enjoy the beauty and delight of the world that he has created. And even though the penalty of sin is death, God is kind and patient and waits for people to repent. So we can see in that broad Based sort of uh, temporal sense that God loves men, all men, all people, regardless of their spiritual state. And we, as, as his children, are called to emulate him by doing good to all men. We, we show that by um, demonstrating mercy and kindness and goodness and helping people in their suffering and, and by sympathy towards all men. But God demonstrates yet another kind of love that applies uniquely to his own elect children. This is the sacred love of God, which is not focused on temporal earthly blessings, but on eternal things and things that are spiritual in nature. This kind of love only comes to those who has predestined to adoption as sons to himself by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, Ephesians 1.5 as i as i already mentioned we are uh, all of us once were enemies of god every descendant of adam and eve is born a sinner and that nature is at enmity with god and because of our fallen human nature we all rejected god romans 3:10 to 12 makes this very very clear as it is written there is none righteous no not one there is none who understands there is none who seeks after god They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. What an incredibly sad indictment. Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, Galatians 3.22. Left to ourselves, we would all reject God permanently and be condemned to hell forever after being judged for our sins. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. God of his own sovereign will, uninfluenced by anything sinners have or have not done, has chosen to break through the inherent rejection of some and has set his own love upon them. I love the way the New Living Translation translates Ephesians 1, 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault his eyes now just think about this for a moment he says he loved us and chose us before he made the world imagine the world not being in existence and there's just the eternal Godhead father son and Holy Spirit living in perfect love and harmony sharing their eternal glory and God just decides to love you why well because in his infinite love and wisdom he just decided to do it. And remember, we're, we're talking about the God of the Bible here, not you know some open theism God who apparently doesn't know what's going to happen in the future until it happens. Now, this is the one true God who knows everything there is to know from all eternity and not just in some point in time. The world is not yet in existence and he knows you already. How wonderful. I mean, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents haven't even been born yet, but the Lord already knows you. He knows you by name, thousands of years before your parents even start to consider what to call you. And listen carefully. He wrote your name in the book of life even back then because he determined to love you eternally and he will never allow you to perish. And the staggering truth is he hasn't done this for everyone but only for those who he decided to love and make his own. And you can can hear straight away, those who think they're more righteous than God start to object. You know, God's not fair. You know, this is not just. God should love everybody all the same. Why should he? Would you, you know, why should God love those who don't belong to him the same as those who do? Only self-righteous hypocrites would demand that. You know they themselves don't love those who don't don't belong to them the, the way that they might love someone else. I mean, you know, when our when our daughter was pregnant with Luca, I'd occasionally you know softly touch her tummy and say, oh, you know, I I love him already. Now imagine if I did that to a pregnant woman who I didn't know. <laughs> She'd probably say, you know, rack off, weirdo! I'm going to call the police. And as for the the accusation that God is unjust, not being fair by setting his love on some and not others, well, if you really want justice and fairness, you better be careful what you wish for. The Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So God would be perfectly just and fair to condemn every single descendant of Adam and Eve to eternal spiritual death in hell. That would be just, and that would be fair. God would have nothing to answer for. And, you know, I I just think it's quite laughable how some people think it's their job, you know, to tidy up God's character, tidy up his standards. They take the the moral high ground regarding, you know, what it is and what it isn't to be just. And, you know, one of those things is that God must make decisions based on merit, but God may or may not do that and still be righteous. Those who want to be treated according to merit do not understand grace. And some of them are very noticeably proud and self-righteous in my observation. The very essence of grace is that God chooses the deserving. Is that right? No, the undeserved. And the more undeserving, the more glory he gets. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7 in the Old Testament as we examine this. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and uh, this concerns God's sovereign foreknowledge, love, and election of the nation of Israel. And we're reading from verse 6, 6, and Moses here is speaking to the children of Israel. And he says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. Why did God choose to love Israel and make them a special treasure above all the other peoples of the earth? Was it because they were greater in number than other nations? No, actually they were the smallest nation of all. Was there something about them that pleased God or, you know, endeared them to God? No, not at all. Eight times in the Old Testament it describes them as a stiff-necked people. In other words, they're rebellious and obstinate, and stubborn, and this is a national trait. Even today, whenever you tell them to do something, they'll do exactly the opposite, Uh, and they they can be so offhand. You know, if you go to Israel, I actually did this, mention something to them about being God's chosen people, they'll throw their hands up in the air and say, ah, chosen people, chosen people, you know, that's why everyone hates us. Why doesn't Hashem choose someone else? That's, that's what they think about being chosen. God did not set his love upon Israel because they were large and powerful or because they had enormous influence in the world. You know, they, they weren't like the, the USA of the day. They were like the New Guinea of the day. God did not choose them because they were more worthy than other nations or because they were, you know, like the English. Nice, polite. I'm getting a stare from my English wife. Nice, nice polite people who line up in queues and say sorry lots of times. For no reason. No, no, he chose them simply because he loved them and he still loves them and he will always love them. That's the very nature and power of God's sacred love. And it is ignorance, it is gross ignorance to say that God is finished with Israel and has replaced Israel with the church. This is is commonly referred to as replacement theology. And those who promote it understand neither sovereign election nor sovereign grace nor the love and faithfulness of God and according to Scripture are ignorant and wise in their own opinion. Romans 11, 25 to 27, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. But blindness has happened in part to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As he's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness for Jacob. But this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. That term, take away their sins, is a unique reference to the New Testament. Under the old covenant, only temp- the, the, the sins were only temporarily covered by the blood of animals. But now, under the new covenant, they are taken away. good through the sacrifice of Christ and we must not forget that God makes his covenant his new covenant with Israel and the Gentiles all non-Jews are grafted into that new covenant that God has made with Israel and I know this comes as a bit of a shock to some people who describe themselves as reformed but listen to what the word says Hebrews 8 8 to 12 behold the days are coming says the Lord and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with them in the day that I took them out of hand by the, by the out of Egypt, I'll say that again, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So there can be absolutely no mistaken identity here. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, and those that God took by the hand uh, out of the land of Egypt cannot possibly be, any other identity than natural, physical Israel. Hebrews 8 goes on to say, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more note all of god's elect after god's sorry after all of god's elect from the gentiles have come to salvation the focus will again be on israel god's promise is that at that time all israel shall be saved does that mean every single jew no it means that there is a holy remnant out of all the tribes of Israel, that God has chosen to love eternally and all of them will be saved. By divine design, a greater ingathering of Jews coming to salvation that at any previous time in history is yet still to come. God chose Israel and out of this nation, he chose to eternally love a chosen remnant. There was always a group within that nation on whom God had set his sacred saving love. And so it is today. And so it will be in the future when at the end of the age, the Lord saves all Israel. Romans 11, 1-2. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, says Paul, of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The people whom he foreknew, the Greek word is prognostico, where we get prognosis from. And it's the same word used in Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, prognostico, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Oh, yes, but, you know, the Jews mocked Jesus and they demanded for him to be crucified. That's the greatest crime anyone's ever committed. That's why God's disregarded them, replaced them. You know, they totally deserved it. Well, again, just be very careful that you don't found as a self-condemning hypocrite. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Yes, the Jews killed Jesus, the Romans killed Jesus, and you and I killed Jesus. Don't lose sight of the big picture. Romans 1117 17 to 18 says, But some of the branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off, and you Gentiles were branches from a wild olive tree and have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing that God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just the branch and not the root. So be careful not to malign those whom God has loved and chosen. Jeremiah 31 1. In that day, says the Lord, I will be God to all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. And verse 3. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people. With an everlasting love, with unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. God has everlastingly loved and drawn a remnant within the elect nation. And God has everlastingly loved and drawn all those who had come to repent and believe in his son and become his own beloved children. John 13 once says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. The last phrase here, to the end, in the Greek, estelos, is a, is a sweeping statement. In, in modern vernacular, it's to the max. God loves his own to the uttermost, to the finish, to completion, to f- perfection. This love is beyond common grace. This love is beyond anything in this life. This is a so sacred, holy love and is only for those who belong to him and who are his chosen. It is a spiritual love that will endure to the end of our earthly sojourn and go into all the way to eternity it's an act of sovereign grace that is incomprehensible to us god initiates the love and we respond when he sets his saving love upon someone that life is regenerated that soul is transformed and that person begins to love god in return 1 john 4 19 we love him because he first loved us God, in the eternal counsel of his own will, will, has determined to set his special love upon those for whom his son would go to the cross and pay in full an actual penalty for their sins. And we saw that love being played out even while Jesus was dying on the cross. As we finish, I just want to uh, read the remarks of one commentator here. It says in Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, they do not know what they do. Now, exactly who was he praying for? Forgive who? Who's them? Well, he was saying, was he saying, forgive all the Romans and bring them to heaven? I don't think so. Was he saying, forgive all the Pharisees and scribes and members of the Sanhedrin and Sadducees and priests who railed against him and stirred up the crowd? Was he forgiving all the people who screamed, crucify him? Was he forgiving all the nation who were complicit in his death? What did he mean? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. What was that prayer, and how could it be answered? Well, you can see how it was answered. He was simply affirming the purposes of God to give forgiveness to sinners, even sinners who were involved in his death. And that prayer was answered immediately. Out of the two thieves... One out of the two thieves was in paradise that day, right? He was forgiven. One of the centurions who tradition calls Longinus who was in charge of the crucifixion said, truly, this is the son of God. The Lord saved a Roman and a thief. And if you get into the book of Acts, it says many of the priests believe in him. He was praying for the forgiveness of God to be given to those whom the Father had set his saving love upon. And the horrendous crime of all crimes, sin of all sins, would not alter that forgiving love. There were some in the bloodthirsty mob that were forgiven. There was at least one among the Romans and maybe more because the soldiers agreed with what the centurion said and there was one of the two thieves that experienced that forgiveness. And What about you this morning? Has God loved you with his sacred everlasting, holy love? Is he drawing you to repent of your sins, to believe in his son and to become his own beloved child? And if he is, there is something that you must do. You must respond. The Bible says, truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead. And although salvation is totally a work of God from beginning to end, for which we take no credit, yet sinners totally bear responsibility if they reject God's commandment to repent. This is something we cannot fully reconcile in our own human thinking, but the Bible says, promises that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 to 13. So my invitation to you this morning, everyone here, anyone who may be listening, is to come to Christ. What well, What a way to start 2023. Speak to God. Speak to him the way you would speak to me and anyone else. And invite him to save you and to redeem your life. Christ has removed every obstacle. But you need to come to him in faith and repentance. Ask him. God will hear you. He is a true and living God. And in receiving him, you will come to know the sacred love of God. Let's pray. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, your love for your children is like no other love. What can we do, Lord? What can we do but thank you with all our hearts, with all our being? Thank you that despite our sinful rebellion and disregard for your truth and righteousness, you decided to set your sacred love upon us. Thank you for rescuing us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins? Thank you that because you have loved us before the foundation of the world, we can never perish. No one is able to snatch us out of your hand because you are more powerful than anyone else. Thank you, Lord, that whatever 2023 brings, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from your love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.